from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 24. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Hosea, chapter 8, verse 7. For they sow the wind, and they reap the whirlwind. Welcome to Epigraph. I'm Ted. And I'm Maria. And on this episode, we are going to be discussing the children's story by Beatrix Potter, The Tale of Squirrel Nutkin. As you might guess by our epigraph, uh, I think I think we're going to end up in the realm of the apocalyptic. <laughs> yes. um, one thing that's interesting is we have both had some separate thoughts about this. But we haven't discussed them at all. So we each chose an epigraph. Yes, and we're going to start talking about what we see in the story. Um, what what are you, Maybe without saying, showing all of your cards yet, what's, what's appealing to you to have a conversation about something like Squirrel.Kin? Because I have reason, my own reasons. Well, speaking pretty generally. Yes, that's and not, what I'm after right now. not specific to Squirrel.Kin, I think there are these stories, there are often children's stories, that are written by, usually by really, really smart people, I think. Although mm-hmm. I think sometimes people just get lucky. <laughs> we talked about one of those recently, I think. I don't remember what it was. Um, yeah. But well, Go Dogs Go is one of them, in my opinion. It's a whole other, that's a whole other episode. <laughs> that's a but. different episode. Um, where there's a, a straightforward, simple story that, if you start to think about it, really taps into some deep things, and I think you can get a lot out of it without saying, well, the author was just creating an allegory, or mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. author, you know, was really trying to get at this, but it's more, what appeals to me is that when you get an author of whatever kind of story who ends up telling the truth, mm. then it always starts to tap into these much broader things. Yeah, that's... that's... I, I would agree, I would say that's almost exactly my interest. I, I particularly I think I sort of have a second level of interest in children's stories that do that, for 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 the reason that it is they're, they tend to be so short. You you mm-hmm. have so little to work with in a sense, and you you know if it as per the conversation we've we've had recently, if it's didactic, you don't it doesn't stick with you, mm-hmm. and so. And yeah, and, and Beatrix Potter, she's been around for a while. She's also is late Victorian. Edwardian. Edwardian England. So, she, you know, she's been around for a little while and it's enduringly popular. My children love Beatrix Potter. Um, so, yeah, I, I really liked what you said about this sort of telling the story and then this stuff like shakes out of it. Um, this friend of ours who's writing a lot, he, he gave me one of his short stories that he's working on, which on its face is this sort of like story of these rough Ozark guys who go off and then terrible things start happening to them because they're terrible men. And and I was talking to him about why he wrote the story and he just wanted to tell the story. And I said, yeah, but it's also obviously about the fact that when you become a, when you start transgressing against the moral order of the universe, monsters show up. Mm-hmm. I was like, and that's, that's, that's incredibly true. And, and he said, and so it was that interesting thing of he just wanted to tell the story and I thought he did a good job of telling the story and it's a true story. And so then all this stuff came out of it without being allegory. I, would you, would you say that you have a similar impression of the Chronicles of Narnia? Cause I know those, you know, I've, I've even level, I've even suggested to you that perhaps they should be read as allegory. You've pushed back and held much more of the position that you just presented to me now. Do well, you- we'll, we'll get into the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm sure in a different episode, 
I don't, I don't think that that's how I would frame it with there, with that. But I do think that it is something different in the Chronicles of Narnia in that I think there Lewis was much more deliberately good telling yeah. the truth with yeah. that story. What I think you get in these other stories, and I have no idea what Beatrix Potter's thought process was like when she wrote Squirrel Nutkin, but I think what you get is that these authors end up saying much more than they intended to. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, I, I love that. And so then it starts, it is... Or, oh, you know, sorry, you, sorry, just to add. Yeah, or go for it. they are writing in such a way that they may intend all that, but they intend it in such a way that you're... Their goal is not to get you to think about those things explicitly. Right. It's right. And and I think about, I think about what is the role of those stories. And it is, it is a sort of like this baseline, like formation of the structure, like these pe- structural patterns of reality, mm-hmm. which I mean, sounds really highfalutin, but like, I really think that's what's going on. And Beatrix Potter in particular, like as, as sort of as a corpus has that quality to it. And, and we'll get into that and into some of the things that I see there, particularly, do you, to, but to go to school, not in particular. Do you, maybe we should go through a very brief synopsis of it, and then one of us can take, maybe lead off with their with their view of what's going on. I think that if someone listening to this doesn't know Squirrel Nut can just go to Project Gutenberg. They've got it there with, with illustrations. Excellent. It's all in public domain. Just go read it. If you're a fast reader, it'll take you less than five minutes. Fantastic. <laughs> so we're gonna at, at this point we're gonna assume that everyone who's listening, everyone has. Is familiar enough to with Squirrel Nutkin to follow along. So yeah. why do, okay? Why don't you why don't you present to why don't you present sort of your your reading of it? What you what why you think Squirrel Nutkin is one of those stories that we just talked about, where it's it's operating on there's this there's this deep level of truth telling at the same time as just being a children's story. Well, I don't have a an overarching narrative interpretation. Okay, if I you do. do, I do. <laughs> then why don't you go for it and I'll see if the things that I'm thinking about fit into what you're saying or, you know, I'm, I'm always happy to push back. <laughs> right. Okay. So I was, maybe a narrative pattern isn't exactly right. I would say the story is structured around a particular truth. And so when I, and, and I've read it a lot of times, but maybe in the last six months I read it and I finally had this sort of, this aha moment with it. So you have the squirrels who are. Oh, by the way. Ted's epigraph was the genesis. Mine was the genesis sword. was the flaming sword. Mine was the whirlwind. <laughs> yeah, excellent. So you, oh, it's just great. It's just great. So you, you, you've got the squirrels. They're these sort of genteel beings, right? I mean, they, they, in my mind, they take the place of people in the story. They're very cultured. They're they very obviously cultured. have a system. They've got rights. They're preparing for the winter. I mean, in a way beyond what squirrels ordinarily do. Right, and which is which is fascinating. Yes, the, so the, the whole idea of rights and like... And R-I-T-E. S- yes, R-I-T-E and, and ceremony. Mm-hmm. It's just drenched in it. And so the drama comes from Squirrel Nutkin who refuses to participate in that and all the other squirrels who do. And I, I there's sort of like the drama goes in two ways. One is that you have the squirrels nego- making these negotiations with Old Brown. And then you have the deviant behavior of Squirrel Nutkin in relation to the appropriate relation actions of the other squirrels. And to me, that's what it's talking about. To my reading, that's what it's talking about. Old Brown is, is the forces of chaos and darkness. He is, he, in, in one sense, he is like the unknown and the chaotic and the monsters. In another sense, he's kind of like a God. Mm-hmm. More of an Old Testament relationship to God. And so the story is, 
If you uh, want I'm gonna, to, I'm gonna say not an Old Testament relationship to God, but like a Greek old relationship a Greek, to God, more like a Greek relationship to God. Although I think you can raise it up a level, but we we can we can argue about that later. <laughs> but the pattern is you want life. You you need the things that provide life for you, right? It's mm-hmm. it's there's the island that has all the nuts on it, and you know it's interesting to think about like. Even in her illustrations, <laughs> why do they have to go to the why island? Why do they go to the island? That's one of the things I wanted to find out what you think about it. Because there's no indication in the story. Why are they leaving their woods where they live? Excellent. And yes. crossing the lake to the island. So they go to the island and you the, there's this guardian, right? And, the, and you, you can see where my, my line comes from, right? There's, there's the, it's this isolated place of abundance and there is the guardian hmm. there. How do you, what do you do? Well, you make offerings, you make sacrifices to it, and in return, you get what you need for life. And this is a very, I think this mesh is like really strong with a sort of Jordan Peterson idea of sacrifice, which is that you give things up for greater good later. And, and so you've, you've got, you've got the squirrels who are, they've got the right relationship with, with the otherness, right? Who mm-hmm. is embodied in old Mr. Brown. I mean, he's old, Right. He's old. He he, and he lives in a tree, which is also fascinating to me. It's centered around a tree. There's this old creature that inhabits a tree, and you have to come and bring sacrifices to it, and then it will let you live. And Nutkin doesn't do that. He flaunts it. Not only does he not bring sacrifice, but he sacrifices, but he mocks the owl, right? So that's so that's sort of part of it. And then the in that sense, that's teaching us sort of embodying a structure that I think is a very primitive, and I mean that kind of in a technical sense, a primitive way of understanding the universe, mm-hmm. right? That there is something out there that you owe things to. That's probably the best way to put it. You owe things to something in order, because you live, right? In, you're receiving all of these good things from the universe that allow you to be alive, allow you to continue to exist, and you have an obligation to give part of that up to that sort of that gatekeeper or that source. Brown's, I mean... Although it's interesting... I don't, are you, you well, let me, let me, like, I want to go, I want to go, I want to add one more thing to that and Mm -hmm. then I, and then we can go. What's interesting to me about Squirrel, the story about Squirrel Nutkin that strikes me as really deeply true is it's not just, listen, you need to, you need to make your sacrifices. You need to, you need to live rightly. You need to participate in the patterns. You need to have good manners. You can say all of these different things, but that Squirrel Nutkin transgresses against the owl for a long time. He mocks and he mocks and he mocks and he gets more bold because he's been mocking. And then all of a sudden it comes crashing down on him. And to me, that's really true because you look at when we, to, it seems to me sort of to be the, the sort of fundamental disagreement with, let's say, utilitarianism or ends justify the means. You say, okay, well, or consequentialism. It's like, well, on what, on what timeline are we talking about? Because if you extend a consequentialism to a cosmic timeline, I would say yes. Mm-hmm. Do the things that don't create, that don't bring about badness, and do the things that bring about goodness. But you can't, you can't shorten things up. And so the whole, the whole, you know, the 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 draw. So much of the drama in the story comes from the fact that, especially if you've read it before, you know what's coming for Squirrel Nutkin, <laughs> and he doesn't. And he thinks he can get away with it. And it's sort of, you get an echo of that too in the fact that all the other squirrels are preparing for winter and Squirrel Nutkin isn't. So it's like, if the owl doesn't get him, he's going to starve. Because he's being a fool. Although the other squirrels continue to take Squirrel Nutkin with them, which makes you wonder, 
Will they care for him? You don't know. Sure. Okay. So sure. one of the things that's okay. So push back. Fascinating. So the, yeah. So there's there's that's basically I'm gonna that's I I have detail I could fill in, but that's basically the story as I see it. It'll, you have the sacrificing happen. squirrels. You have the the mocking squirrel. You have old old brown who sort of is these various sort of like God, sort of like the forces of nature. All these things, and then you have what happens to Squirrel Nutkin as he as he mocks reality, mm-hmm. if you will. So okay. So um. The things I was thinking about largely fit right into that. So I was thinking about a squirrel nutkin as someone who thinks that he can avoid the consequences of what he's doing. He obviously, by the end of the story, right before the crisis, <laughs> considers himself untouchable. If you Literally look, above old Mr. Brown. <laughs> if you look at the riddles that he's asking, mm. they're all about things that are either helpless like the one about Humpty Dumpty uh-huh. where he's unfixable uh-huh or they're about the wind or the sunlight or something uh-huh. that you cannot do anything about he considers himself a force of nature oh interesting yeah yeah i and, see that and well, that's a false that's a false perception what's, what's even more interesting is that the earlier riddles and you know the text has the answer italicized they're, if I remember, I, I, and I could look through, they're all sort of exegete, they're sort of, uh, they're things that aren't Squirrel Nutkin. But the later ones, he dances like the sunbeam, he makes the noise like the wind, he starts to embody the answer to his riddles. Well, he already does that sort of at the beginning. Does he? he okay. It says he okay. bobs up and down like a cherry in That's the very right. first one. That's right. But he pretty quickly goes to, you know, um, I think the second one is about the nettle, um, where there he's almost, he's threatening, like, if you try to touch me, mm-hmm. I'll bite you. Yeah, he tickles him with a nettle. Yeah, and then you have the smoke, you have the riddle about the smoke, which is also very Another much. Another one, yeah. yes. Um, then you have the plum puddings. We could talk about plum puddings, whether or not, you know, if that fits in <laughs> with it. Which, you know, again, it, because none, we're not it, talking about, we're not. We're not saying Beatrix Potter was writing an allegory that fits this exactly. But that her but, good Creative intuition was lead, sort of producing this. Yes. Yeah. I'll, I'll buy that. Yeah. And then you have bees. Again, interestingly, the sort of both untouchable, but also will, st- you know. Mm-hmm. Things that can bite you back if you try to touch them is yes. where he starts. Yep. And then he moves to things that you just can't touch. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how Squirrel Nut can Views- think he fits into this. Yes. Yeah. And... He's wrong. <laughs> He's very wrong. Yeah. He gets extremely violently touched. Yes. He's captured. Yeah. And dismembered. Dismembered. And it's not just any dismemberment. It's obviously the glory of the squirrel yeah. lies in its tail. He has been he's been stripped of his glory, mm-hmm. right? And it's obvious because if you even bring it up, bring up riddles or anything like that, he will yell at you like he you know he is he is well I don't know how much of a reformed character he is but he's ashamed of it right he doesn't want to be reminded of how he lost his tail yes now here's something that I probably have a couple thoughts about but I'd be very interested to hear what you have to think about this squirrel nutkin does so many things wrong mm-hmm. he doesn't bring sacrifices mm-hmm. he has no manners mm-hmm. he's entirely improvident mm-hmm. he plays games while the other squirrels are working hard mm-hmm. he's not punished for that he's punished for his impertinence yeah that's a great i like that 
Okay, so well, here 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 would be my first. Here's my first thought is, um, well, that some things are more forgivable than others, mm-hmm. and the the fact that it's his impertinence that is punished, I think, is very telling. And I don't. Well, here's what I would say. I would say that there's that his impertinence that he, of jumping on old Mister Brown's head. It seems very clear that that's sort of the culmination of all his previous impertinence, and that's a sort of like. You could push on reality for a long time and then all of a sudden it can push back. Like that happens all the time. And I, you know, I think about the kind of work that I do a lot of, um, you can do something out in the world a lot of times and then all of a sudden it just, it, it abs, you could, you could, so a great example of this in my mind is when we were building a bridge several years back and we, we had to move these two big flat pieces of metal across a field. We had these 15 ton excavators, one on each end of it, and they're driving holding, holding this thing off the ground with chains. And we drove through this damp pasture down to the creek where it was getting put in. And then they drove back. We got the second one. And on the final pass, the second excavator in about a half a second, all of a sudden, just the tracks basically disappeared into the dirt. So everything had held up fine until enough times of driving over. We had just, we had basically, I think we had hydrated the soil enough that it just turned to soup all of a sudden. And then within a half a second, it was almost unrescuable. We got it out. And if we had waited, if the operator had waited another second of driving forward, it would have been, it would have taken us all day to get the machine out of the, the ground. So that strikes me as very true. And, and it's not that there's something may say transgressive about something wrong about driving the excavator in that way, but just this idea that, Hey, listen, I should always get an immediate response for everything that I've done wrong or dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, that's actually not how the world works. It's oftentimes we're kind of, we kind of keep on doing our thing. And then all of a sudden we get the consequence, which is why, and I think this relates to the book of Job, which I don't know if I've, I've brought up in, in, on, on this podcast, the idea that, um, wisdom comes from realizing that you have to judge things at the end of the story mm-hmm. and not in the middle of it because, and Squirrel Nut is a great example of this is, is Squirrel Nut going to get in, going to get in trouble for being impertinent for not making the right sacrifices, etc. Well, if you stop before the end, maybe it's fine. Maybe it's fine to mock old Brown. Maybe it's fine to tickle him with nettles and to not bring the sacrifices. But when you have the whole story, all of a sudden here it is. Wrath comes. I'm, I've heard you know, the, the idea, the Old Testament idea of wrath, I've understood as something that is builds up. I've heard, for, I can't, mm-hmm. And I couldn't tell you where I, this came from. Probably it might have been Echoes of Exodus. Have you read that recently? Not recently. any rate, one of those bi- sort of biblical theology books looking at the Old Testament is something that builds. Wrath is not a, wrath is not Newton's third law. You push on something and immediately pushes back. It's this sort of, you are like storing up for yourself things. And then all of a sudden, it's this 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 sort of, if you will, blasphemous action on his part to jump on Old Brown's head, you know, to to assert his dominance over Old Brown. That that's when it's over. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? Do you buy it? Yes, to a large extent. But what makes this story so fascinating is that she wants to take that even further. Okay, tell me. When they came back very cautiously, peeping around the tree, there was old Brown sitting on his doorstep quite still with his eyes closed, as if nothing had happened. <laughs> okay, so old Brown's yes. asking, look, acting as if 
Yeah. None of this happened. Yes. But Nutkin was in his waistcoat pocket. Okay, <laughs> there's the consequences. Yes. Next page. This looks like the end of the story, but it isn't. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so we keep going. Nutkin gets a second chance. Interesting. Wow. That, that, that page takes on a whole other level of meaning. Yeah, okay. And it's not like, for Nutkin, none of this happened. He's lost his tail. Yeah. He's very sensitive about it. Yeah. But... There is a note of hope here at the end because she says, and, and you know, this is all playful. And yeah. to this day, if you meet Nut- Nutkin up a tree and ask him a riddle, you know, he'll scold back at you. So he's still alive. He's still alive. Apparently, yes. he yeah. has learned to gather nuts for the winter. Yes. Or something. Yeah. And he stopped telling riddles. <laughs> he stopped telling riddles. <laughs> which is, which is, what do you, so what do you think of, what do you think of the riddles? Uh, to me, they seem to be the sort of like, attitude of like flippancy towards the universe towards things it's this sort of like it's a way of not taking things seriously mm-hmm. partially because it's like at least in some of the riddles everyone knows the answer right he's not being clever he's not being clever and yet it is a more complicated attitude towards the universe you know here she says uh, but old Mr. Brown took no interest in riddles, not even when the answer was provided for him. <laughs> and that's after Nutkin tells the riddle, the man in the wilderness said to me, how many strawberries grow in the sea? I answered him as I thought good, as many red herrings as grow in the wood. Yeah. So there's that element of play there where you you think about other ways that the world could be. Mm-hmm. There could be strawberries growing in the sea. There could be red herrings in the wood. Yeah. There's an absurdity there where you recognize that both of those are equally false. And yet, it is something outside of the simplistic view that old Brown seems to take where, you know, it's all just exchange. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. I, and I, I, well, you're, to your earlier comment about, you know, him being maybe more like a Greek god. Than, than Yahweh of the Old Testament. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot there. Like he is, he's sort of like one of the old gods, one of the pagan gods. And in, in the sense that he, let's say he has an agenda and it's not ours, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't really bear much relation to ours. And so he doesn't take any interest in, you know, Nutkin's speculation, yeah. you know, <laughs> playful or mocking, but he's very interested, you know, but it says now old Mr. What is it? There's the one line. Now old Mr. Brown took an interest in, uh, in eggs. In eggs. Yes. yes. <laughs> Yeah. So, neither one works. Yeah. Old Brown's vision is incomplete. He has no room for Squirrel Nutkin. Yeah. And Squirrel Nutkin escapes from him in the end. Yes. But Squirrel Nutkin is also wrong to think that he can live without that exchange that's yeah. necessary to operate within Old Brown's system. Yeah. It it feels... Yeah, it does... It seems... It does seem very much... Because if you think about, well, so, so then I started thinking, that, that makes me think maybe there's some answers if you look looking at the different very sacrificial systems that you see in religion. And the thing that immediately strikes me is there's a, a deep difference between um, the Hebrew sacrificial system and the sacrificial systems of a lot of um, like native religions in places. Like, like the Greeks, like... Um, in you know in in the some of the cultures in Latin America that I've had a, you know I've read a little bit about etc where in one it's a in the Hebrew system it's it's from pri- primarily for leaving fellowship offerings aside for moral propitiation we have transgressed mm-hmm. we owe a debt therefore to God because he is righteous and so then we 
give this thing up in exchange for a transgression. The other one is much more transactional. I need to have children. I need it to not flood. I need to have victory. So I'm going to basically pay the God something. I'm going to put something good on the table. So he puts something good on my table. And Old Brown is very much in the, in the, in the latter category. There's no, there doesn't seem to be any understanding. It, there doesn't seem to be anything presented in the story that would suggest that Old Brown is a, is a sort of moral mediator. In that sense, yeah. I think he's, it's almost more important to look at him from the squirrel's perspective rather than from Old Brown's perspective. What I, in terms of what it's, it's asking of them. It's interesting. Um, we know that Old Brown could eat the squirrels. Yes. And presumably that is why they have to propitiate him. Yes. That's why they have to ask him for permission to get yes. the nuts. But that doesn't really play a role in the story. The the element it's it's just a sort of background so that we, we get why this would be going on. But the elements of exchange, the actual goods that they're exchanging are not things that either one wants. They're oh, giving something. Yeah. The, the squirrels yeah. are giving Old Brown things that they don't want. They're what? not good for anything except to give them to Old Brown in order to get nuts that Old Brown doesn't and want. And you know they do have to work for them. They have to find them. But mm-hmm. it, so I had as sort of it's interesting the conversation moved that way because I was also sitting thinking about what do those goods? What are the goods that they give to Old Brown like? And I was thinking, so you, what you've got? You've got beetles, fish, an egg. Um, there's honey. What else is there? There's six of them, which is interesting. No, no. It's on the seventh day. Well, I, 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 Did I, you say I, that? Yeah, I said that by fish. Um, uh, what's that? There's Okay, let's uh, go, a go mole, in order. A three, fat mole. Three fat mice. Yes, three fat mice. A fine fat mole. A fine fat mole. The next one seven is... Seven fat minnows. Seven fat minnows. All fat. <laughs> yes. Six fat beetles. Oh, they are all fat. Uh... Wild honey. Wild honey. Which you can't describe as fat, but it does, there it specifies. So sticky. It was so sweet and sticky that they licked their fingers as they put it down upon the stone. Interesting. And On the, the six a new laid egg. egg. That's the last one. In okay. a little rush basket. In a little rush basket. Interesting. <laughs> All those details are so fascinating. So I'm going to drop the honey as off for As a last parting <laughs> present for Old Brown. Interesting. <laughs> I'm gonna drop. I'm gonna drop the honey out for now. You can tell me if you see a way to integrate this. But okay. one of the things that I thought was very interesting is everything else is very perishable. The fish rot, fish rot, insects <laughs> rot, animals rot, the eggs rot. Uh huh. What are they trading them for? Nuts. Something that's going to last them all winter. So and clearly, it, so they're so they're the idea of sacrifice. I mean, this is just an interesting sort of sacrifice, really broadly. What are you doing when you sacrifice? You, you're giving up something you're going to lose anyway. Mm-hmm. In order to gain something that you don't lose. Something that lasts. Something that endures. I, I find that really interesting that there's this pattern of they give up something that is, that is very temporal. I mean, this is, a very, obviously this is a very Christian idea of, of sacrifice. They're giving up something now. Some, well, no, maybe, it, maybe if you take out that perishable versus imperishable, it's like, well, what am I going to do when I go to school? To sacrifice, I sacrifice my time to school, right? I sacrifice this time that I have now as a youth, but that's going to go away for the enduring thing, which is education, training, knowledge, et cetera, that's going to continue to serve me for a long time that will be preserved in me, right? Mm-hmm. You can think about this all kinds of ways. I'm going to 
sacrifice these sort of short-term fluffy relationships and get married, which will is something that will last. You know, mm. all you can you can see over and over and over that same pattern. I like that's good sacrifice. That's maybe not a good religious sacrifice, but a good like life sacrifice. Is that's the pattern I see? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I went to Wheaton College. One of the other alumni from Wheaton, long before my time, of course, was Todd Beamer, who um, helped storm the cockpit on one of the 9-11 flights oh, and wow. steer it away. Um, so there's a student center there named after him. And on the wall, it has a quote from him, which I love. You know, a lot of those quotes get so corny. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. but um, the quote, if I'm remembering it right, is he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Mm. I actually know where he got that. That's from Jim Elliott, who was a who's a Protestant missionary who went to the Amazon and got killed. Am I getting this completely mixed up? Uh, you because might, I Jim don't Elliott know. also went to Wheaton. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> it might be Jim Elliott. I know that that's from Jim Elliott. Um, but yes. Maybe maybe it's a Jim Elliott quote in the Beamer Student Center. That could definitely That might be, be it. Okay. I mean, they both sacrificed their lives. Yes. In, right. In Christian sacrifice. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that and that's sort of the turn. That's sort of the turn when you take Squirrel Nutkin and you say, this is a way of looking at, like, how do we work operate in the world? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you say, well, no, how do we operate in not just, not just, not just nature, but in supernature, right? What is, what is the sort of the, how should we, how should we act out in, in, in supernatural reality? And it's like, yes, give up the things that are going to rot and get the bread that sustains you, right? The thing mm-hmm. that will last through the winter, right? Which is death. By the way, <laughs> so I just I wanted to uh, what can I if, if unless you've got something else here I want to bring something up that I found interesting. Go for it. So, in a book I read recently on the Inklings, and I I think you read it too. Do you remember that part where it talks about C.S. Lewis being impacted by Squirrel Nutkin? He talks about how he it was his experience of pure autumn. Mm. He said that and it's talking about in in some of from some of his writings these these really deeply impactful moments in his life, which. The other one that I recall from that, and I find very similar, is his older brother um, when they were both young, maybe eight and ten or something like that. His brother Warney, his older brother Warney, had made this tiny like diorama garden in a pie pan, mm-hmm. so you know out of moss and some other things. And Lewis, looking at it, he later then associated that 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 moment that he had with his like with his understanding of Eden. There was something so. Um, I guess he would describe it as like heartbreakingly precious, not precious in like the trite sense, but like precious in the valuable sense about that tiny garden. It was like, it's like jewel. Like mm-hmm. here it is. And I think that is very related to the island. The idea of the island, right? There's this, it's this thing set in the water, right? Mm-hmm. There it is. It's isolated. It's full of this just precious beauty. Part of the appeal of England. Part of the appeal of England. Absolutely. Or, or to quote Lewis again, you know, it is, it is impossible to, um, to, regard anything that is surrounded by a wall as common. Yes. And so there's this, that I think to, I think that's part of the idea of the Island. You know, it's also, um, Beatrix Potter more broadly, I think is deeply Edenic. Mm-hmm. When you look at her illustrations, they're sort of England, but they everywhere looks like a garden. Everywhere looks like a garden. And you have a bunch of animals running around talking with people mm-hmm. in this sort of, lion and the lamb scenario where you have predatory animals that aren't always eating each other. And then sometimes they are, and they, they never really seem to care. That's the interesting <laughs> thing, right? There's other stories where there's moles and mice that are main characters. 
and here they are bringing them as offerings and you you think, well, well, hold on. Like, was that my, that mouse, someone's friend. And it's like, <laughs> I know, it, it kind of doesn't matter. But it doesn't go there. It doesn't go there. There's death operates in a different way. And so I think I, to me, to, to, it doesn't, it doesn't, it fits really well that it's this guard. It's this, this Island in the mm-hmm. middle of, I guess a Scottish lock, I don't know, or the Lake District or something. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's like even the illustrations, when you look at it, the, the autumn cl- the autumn hills fade away into clouds. They look like colored clouds. You just have this floating island. I mean, again, with Lewis, I was like, how much of Paralandra did he get from growing up on Beatrix Potter? You know, there's a little bit, there's there's some of that there, right? The floating islands. And, and I know that he, I know that other people have seen the connection between the floating islands and, and that experience that he had with Warney's little miniature garden. Um, but for us, right, we go to the garden. We're, we're, I, I really think, like, we're the squirrels. And you go to the garden, and boy, there's still an owl in the garden. Mm-hmm. And that, that owl will bite you if you don't act right. <laughs> Squirrel Nutkin, I think in the most positive view of his character, uh-huh. seems to be wanting to live as if there had been no fall. Oh, he's yes. Always, okay. He's, okay. He's, yeah, he's playing. He's he, always he's playing. playing. And he's, he's, there's constantly this contrast between what the, what the squirrels have done mm-hmm. to work for the next thing that they're going to give Old Brown and then mm-hmm. what Squirrel Nutkin has to say about it. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, they work, they get up early to catch the minnows. Nutkin starts singing about herrings growing in the wood, right? So you just go pick them. They bring the fat beetles as good as plums and plum pudding so we don't get the specifics. But, you know, mm-hmm. obviously mm-hmm. they had to catch the beetles and it says each one was wrapped up well, carefully in a dock up. leaf yeah. fastened yeah. to the pine needle pen. You know, they worked for that. And Nutkin sings flower of England, fruit of Spain met together in a shower of rain. You know, turning the creation of these things into a game. They bring the present of wild honey that's they've stolen from a bumblebee's nest and that can start singing about bees as sheep as, as sheep, sheep flying yeah. across a river. Yeah. yeah. Well, so what's okay to, to add to that, you, each of those scenes you have, you have this, you, they, they come, they, there's the, there's the offering and then they go out, the other squirrels go out into the woods. They have this like utilitarian approach to the, to the woods around them. Mm-hmm. And squirrel Nutkin is constantly finding something in the environment. It's always, it's crab, crab apples or, or, or oak apples or or green pine or green pine cones or, or yeah. robin's pin whatever and he he does something fun with it mm-hmm. which is really interesting so his it's well okay maybe should squirrel nut can be viewed less as um this truant as just as a fool but maybe as the balance to the squirrels that somehow the right thing is for there to be an integration between them to be something mm-hmm. of that you're supposed to be moving back and forth. And is that maybe partially why he's not punished until the very end? The tale of Squirrel Nutkin is not the fable of the ant and the grasshopper, which is fascinating. Yes. And I think that yeah. may be partly why he's punished not for failing to store up for winter, but for failing to respect things that ought to be respected. Yes. Yeah, and, and the more that I think about it, you know, Owl, I think uh, the, the old Mr. Brown, the owl... As well, it's it's so interesting. What the, maybe you can make something of this? But the the next thing that I the thing that came into my mind is it's either in the four quartets or the wasteland. There's that short passage where Elliot is talking about the river and how at first it was it, he talks about it as the old the 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 brown god 
and how they like made sacrifices to it so that it mm-hmm. wouldn't overflow the banks, and then they built a bridge over it and it was forgotten. Mm-hmm. But the god is and still there. He even start it. Doesn't he start that? It's in the four quartets. Okay, great. I think the river mm-hmm. is a god. I think, yeah, yes. It's a fascinating way to put it. That's that's what Mr. Brown, old Mr. Brown is, I think. He is a natural god. Mm-hmm. I think is probably the best way to understand that. And that's also probably why Nutkin escapes. Because there is something above old Mr. Brown. Mm-hmm. He's not the ultimate mediator of reality, right? Yeah. There's, there's a higher pattern, right? And, and Squirrel Nutkin... Squirrel Nutkin still, right, he loses his tail. It's not good to be that way. Mm-hmm. But but when he's trapped, yes. this looks like the end of the story. But it but isn't. But it isn't, right? And uh, yes, exactly, exactly. So so maybe Mold Mr. Brown is more like the river god, right? And, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> that should be a warning to all of us because, as Elliot points out, the god is still there under the bridge, right? Even if you've built the bridge and you can drive over and, and forget it, that god is still lying there asleep and probably will come out of the bank someday. We don't really have to negotiate with old Mr. Brown the way that people have done for a lot of history. That doesn't mean old Mr. Brown isn't there. Mm-hmm. Just because you can push on him for a long time doesn't mean he's not there. I, I, think, I, I think a good way to look at maybe the last 100 to 200 years of human history is we've all been tickling old Mr. Brown and then going off and playing in the woods. And at some point... We should be wise to the small cases of that happening in our lives so that we can get our eyes up and say, hold on, are we making the right sacrifices? Are we, are we extending our courtesy outside of ourselves? Or, you know, are we going to lose our tail? <laughs> you know? What do you think of the idea of courtesy as an important part of interacting rightly with the world. I'm completely on board. Yes, but in what <laughs> okay. way? Like, so, well, why is it? Okay, so we what could, does it do? What does it why do? Why is Squirrel Nutkin wrong to be discourteous? Why is he wrong to be discourteous? Which is his, I think, ultimate sin. That's a, Okay, so we'll start somewhere and, and, and try, to, try to work back around. It's, this is pretty short, though. Something that I've been thinking about a lot is um, manners. Like, why do we teach our children manners? Mm-hmm. And uh, the obvious one, of the most obvious one is, well, so other people like them. Because if you raise your children to be obnoxious or insufferable, it's like they're going to have a really bad life. And, but that's sort of the social utilitarian view of it, and that's great, and you should do it for that reason. But then uh, I, I, it was a, sort of a cast-off phrase from a priest in the last couple of weeks talking about prayer and then relating to that saying to that to learning please and thank you. And so I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of so what are the what are the basic aspects of household courtesy? It's yes sir, no sir to the parents, it's please, it's thank you, and I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And thinking about that all so not just in terms of how do you make how do you become a, a likable person, but like what does that teach you about the structure of reality? And it's like it's gratitude, it's repentance, it's respect. And I guess please is please is sort of respect and gratitude at the same time. And givenness, actually. That's what please is. You have to ask for things. Things are given to you. Um, and so when, it, when, when, you, when I think about, okay, well, those are very important morally speaking for your moral, moral orientation towards, the, towards reality. And also for real happiness, 
I think you're, I think if you didn't have those things, you would, you would be from the get go incapable of happiness. That just seems like a baseline truth to me. If you're not grateful, if you're not polite, if you can't repent, you will never, ever be happy. And so, so I I guess one of my answers is nature corresponds to supernature. The things that work in supernatural reality generally work in natural reality on some plane. Um, and, and to more specifically, I could, I mean, I, I don't know if maybe we can work to some sort of overarching theory, but I can think of a lot of specifics where it makes a lot of sense. Okay. So you've got, you've got something that has a margin to it, say a population of fish or a population of deer or the grass in a field and you can take from it and it will be okay. And if you take from it the way you're taking from food from a table at a, at, a, at a dinner party, everything will be fine. You'll get what you need. Things are not lost. Things may be better in that environment. Specifically, you know, there's some interesting ecological patterns that result in actually there being more when you take some from it. But if you act like the bad guest, you can ruin the party for everyone, right? You take enough, all of a sudden, things start to collapse no one gets any fish. There's all these knock-on damage to the things around. So I don't know that I have a great answer for why that's the exact same thing, mm-hmm. but it is. So, and then another way, so because, because when you think about how should we treat the world, that's the same question is how should we manage our desires? Because we interact with the world because we desire things, whether they're just, I need something for my stomach all the way up to I desire beauty, you know, and everything in between. And so what you what you want in the way that you respond to your desire is the same thing as how you treat the world around you and also how you treat other people. So courtesy, to go back to sort of this politeness is a is a framework for moral formation. It's politeness, it courtesy is reigning in your desire. Because if you try to teach a child to be polite, you will learn very quickly that they don't want to be polite, at least some of the time. Sometimes none of the time. And so what you're saying is, I know you want to act this way, but I'm telling you, you can't. You have to look outside of yourself to a different kind of pattern that meshes with everyone else. And so that kind of, you are are ordering your desires, not necessarily to a telos, but to a pattern, which is sort of like a telos down at a lower level, right? You have a pattern that gets you to an end. You don't, but the interesting thing is you don't have to know what the end is to embody the pattern, to inhabit the pattern and for it to work, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. But, but I think that's what's going on there. It's, it is both human courtesy and this sort of courtesy towards the natural world. They're all, it's all about the same appropriate order of desire. It's not too much. Be grateful. Look higher up for fulfillment than things low down. It's um, recognize that there's something on the other side of things. Mm-hmm. You're not just you in a dead universe grasping at things. Interesting. So that's a very I would call it, it a vertical. Yes, it's a very that's a very vertical view, view of manners. I would I would agree with that. I tend to think of them much more in horizontal terms, and. Manners being part of a respect for other people that leads you in in your right ordering. Yeah. It is one of the ways that you say that you submit yourself to other people. 
Mm. That you mm-hmm. subordinate your desires to their needs. And the curious thing about it, I find, is that it is a way that you show respect for other people, but it also reciprocates in that when other people are courteous, I respect them more. Yeah. Well, so do you, okay, when, so, when uh, other people are courteous, it's yes, easier to be courteous, to be courteous back to them, to them because Absolutely. the respect that the courtesy implies is more and more real. Well, then I would, I would, I would to take to take the sort of the to take what I think is the Thomistic view, then of charity, and to one degree is that, well, we'll leave Thomas aside. I'm, I, this is what I think: courtesy is the transposition of charity to the social. To the social, because the, I mean, the first thing that struck my mind when you when you were talking about that quality of courtesy that it creates courtesy in other people is Dante's extraordinary, you know, extraordinary and sort of literarily famous metaphor of love and heaven as the thing that the more you give it away, the more of it there is. Heaven mm-hmm. is the place where every soul is a perfectly polished mirror that reflects the light of charity. And so the more souls you fit into heaven, the more charities there is bouncing around. And, and so that's on the moral level. On the social level, char- courtesy does the exact same thing. It mm-hmm. has the same function, which makes me think it's probably the same thing. Also, partially because the more charity you have, the more courteous you are. You can have courtesy without having charity, but I don't know that you can have charity without having courtesy. Not, I think, in the true sense. In the true sense, There yes. is... I think an extent to which we take our culturally bound ideals of what we think is courtesy to an extreme. Mm-hmm. What I'm thinking of is the the kind of thing that you know I'm prone to, and and you know uh, Wheaton girls are prone to, where everyone <laughs> everyone's going to submit to everybody else's preferences, and so what happens? <laughs> Is that nothing ever gets oh, yes. decided, and yes. that doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's but that that is a that is that would be well. Yeah, I would suggest that that is taking a part of the pattern. Yes. And trying to submit the entire pattern to that one part, mm-hmm. which is a, I mean, you, there's all kinds of relationships that you can have. I mean, I think that happens in lots of relationships. It happens in marriage too. You know, where you have this sort of you have this sort of no, I'm going to submit to you. No, I'm going to submit to you. And man, if one person had just had the humility to accept the other person's service, neither person would have the opportunity to act in such a self-righteous way and then be mad at each other. It's like, <laughs> so, okay, I want to, I want to, I want to, again, where this is kind of vertical, but I want to take it down one more step. I want to and I give you an idea and I, cause I think it really relates. I think this guy, this, this professor's name is Don Wetzel. I'm not completely certain, but he, he has a fascinating series of lectures on YouTube that he recorded in the woods in New England on New England forests, on the ecology of New England forests. One of them is just, this is just something that I find astonishing. He's able to go out in the woods and say, there's like a lump in the dirt. And he said, that fell down. That's from a tree, a spruce tree that was blown over between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. on uh, October 6th, 1897. Or something like that. And you think stop. And then he walks through, he says, you can tell based on the, you know, the pillow and dip formation or whatever it's called, that this was formed by a tree falling over and not by something else. And we can find the remains of the stump right here. And so we can 
From that, we can tell what kind of tree it was. And it was facing in this direction. And a tree of that kind takes this long to rot. And because it's facing in this direction and there's three more formations right around it in the exact same direction, we can assume that it was from the same wind at this time. And there was a hurricane. The eye of the hurricane passed over this time within these three hours on that year. So we can very safely assume that we know within about three hours when this tree fell over over a century ago, which is really cool. But on another one of his lectures, he talks about, he's talking about invasive species and what is the problem with invasive species? And he, his view of ecology is that it's about efficient energy transfer. But what he's saying is that when you have organisms that are co-adapted to each other, they base, basically, they have developed in such a way that maximizes the amount of available resources between both of them. Hmm. And, and I think that I'd have to go back. It's been about two years since I've listened to it. I think if I went back, I think if you went back and listened to it, there's a very strong correspondence between that and charity. Sorry, in courtesy. So the idea is that well-adapted ecosystems, ones in which everyone is functioning together, has a sort of a metabolic equivalent to courtesy, which might also be the reason that the rules of courtesy also apply to an appropriate response, like an appropriate orientation towards the world around you. Because you're like, to go back to the example of, um, well, let's say of gathering firewood in the forest. That's another great one. The trees give things up. There's a certain margin to it. And if you're, you act in an adaptive manner towards that, you will take enough, but not too much. And then you'll actually invigorate the growth of the forest and there's more firewood available for you in the long term. Now in the short term, if you're maladapted to it, you can take and take and take and take and then nothing's gone and you've destroyed the microclimate that allows trees to grow well there. So then they really don't want to grow back and you just get some scrubby growth. And there's, there's this aspect of you're sort of like taking, you're walking down this path of what produces the most like flourishing in as many different parties as possible, mm-hmm. which is very, so, is very similar to courtesy in my mind. You mentioned co-adapted, which is, uh-huh. I really like that term. Thinking about it in terms of human social interactions, which is where we place courtesy. Yes. What I love about that is that if you think about people co-adapting mm-hmm. in long-term friendships or in a marriage, you actually become more truly courteous as you figure out how to adapt to each other. And so it's yes. no longer yeah, a question yeah. of if there's two people, you take half of what's there food-wise. You start to learn, well, you don't really like the carrots and I like them, so I'm going to take more of them and give you more of something Excellent. that you like. and. And you have that, which is something to grow towards. But at the same time, we also have this base level of things that we know basically work well in accordance with human nature. And those are the exchanges and the customs that grow up that you can apply to any interaction you have. So no matter who you're interacting with, if you've met them before, if you haven't, then there is that base level of expectation where we say, Half Our relationship or... will will function fairly well mm-hmm. if we behave towards each other in these ways. That is interesting. I, I really like your example of like how, how maybe a husband and a wife might divide up food like later on because to the outside it has the it can have the appearance of selfishness of some sort of selfishness or unfairness or something like that. Mm-hmm. But what's really being exhibited is, as you say, a very mature form of courtesy. 
is a matured in the sense of not like both parties are mature, but matured in the sense of it's taken a long time to develop. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a well-developed kind of courtesy. And I think, and so that, yeah, that, that is, I, I'd like to keep, I want to keep pondering that. The, the idea that you can, I don't like the word efficiency in general, but there's sort of this efficiency that you can come to, this sort of relational efficiency where you can realize, well, and this comes It's efficiency to, yeah. in the sense of almost reducing friction. Yes. And that's Your also this, yes, that's, runs more smoothly yes. because you know these things about each other and you have figured out basically how to get rid of the unnecessary subordination of desires in some ways. Like you figured out yes. in this relationship, it's okay for me to have this desire if I'm subordinating yes. this other desire. You're, re- you're reordering them on the basis of the specific context. And so this gets yeah. into the idea of of uh what's the i'm blanking out on the word i want but you have these broader principles you know the sort of the idea of human law being determinations of natural law yeah it's an instantiation it's it's an instantiation of it so you have these broader principles Mm -hmm. and because now you have more knowledge of the specifics you're able to better adapt the larger principles to the situation to the situation right Right, which is why I think you can. There's sort of a middle level of that too, which is the fact that there are different customs in different places. Like mm-hmm. we don't go around kissing each other on the cheek when we meet each other, like they do in Latin, do slash did in Latin America. Doesn't mean we love each other less than people in Latin America do. Mm-hmm. It's just we've come to different forms of it to express these things, um, and, and it's not like one's wrong or the other ones. It, it's they're they're different ways of working out those higher those higher order principles into that particular thing. I, um, if we if we can go back to what you're saying about sort of this negotiation of, of the fact that we've got different desires in this relationship, and so it's like how much do I need to, give them up, and sort of that maturation actually has to do sometimes has to do with like, allowing someone's desire to be expressed, and you know it's not just, you know, clamp that down, you know you don't get extra buttered carrots, you know we're splitting them half and half, and you got to get over that, <laughs> it, it um. To, so what struck me about that is that it's at the, to, that seems like a remarkably humble view of things. Actually, it says, "Look, we are limited and we're finite. <laughs> should should I really spend that much energy trying to get over my love of buttered carrots when you really don't well, care that don't, much? Well, you don't care. That's what it. And so it says, "Okay, we're going to express this courtesy." And the idea is that by freeing one another up to 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 really love each other. It's going to come back around and like, because I'm being fulfilled in these other ways, I'm also going to care less about buttered carrots in the long run, right? Mm-hmm. It's not going to, I'm not going to like bar, bear my teeth at you or like have this long-term resentment. I think about all the stuff Lewis brings up, you know, like these obviously very real examples of like my bordering on sociopathic, like home situations and like, um, the screw tape letters or something, you know, the like, <laughs> yes. you know, like the, the mother that he's living with, things like that, where like, obviously Lewis has lived in that. There's this sort of relaxing and saying, look, like I, I get that. I really like this and it's silly. And like, maybe in five years, I won't care anymore, but for the time being, can we kind of work with where I am? And so, and there's, there's such a freedom to that. And I think yeah. that that comes from, from real knowledge from real knowledge and relationship, which, um, yeah, I, I really like that. I think there's, I think there's a lot of wisdom in seeing that and, 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 and taking the long, being able to take the long view on those things mm-hmm. with, with people. Um, 
and yeah, that's just a great opportunity for, um, yeah, for humility to look at that and say, to say, I don't, I, I understand that I have silly needs and we can work with those. I understand that you have silly needs and we can work with those and I shouldn't, you know, <laughs> feel like neither of us should be thinking less of each other because we have silly needs that need to be worked around. There are these sort of like quirks to, to just get over and it's, and it's a getting past those that you re- I think you really, and through those, because I mean, what, what greater blessing is it than to give up something you don't really care about that much to, for someone else? Who desperately, <laughs> Who wants, desperately it. wants it. <laughs> like that's actually really fun. There's this great opportunity for, for fun there. Um, so, well, there's, so Squirrel Nutkin has some depth to it. I'm not too surprised. <laughs> I'm not sure how much that last part is really in Squirrel Nutkin, but I, it does present us with the opportunity to think about why is courtesy important? What do we and do for that matter, why world? and and then why why is a good way to talk about courtesy a story about squirrels bringing sacrifices to an owl? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some there really is. It should t- tell us this isn't this isn't arbitrary. It's not some social construct. We're actually engaging with reality as it is when we are courteous towards one another. And courtesy is part of relating rightly to the structure in which we live. Yes. That seems like a good place to stop.